Outdoor Adventures Podcast. We're going to talk hunting, fishing, and everything outdoors. So pull up a seat and enjoy our campfire stories. Thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody. What's going on? Thanks for joining me again. Just like to thank everybody that's been tuning in. It's much appreciated. So tonight's guest is a traditional bow hunter, author of a book, conservationist. It's a great pleasure to have him on tonight. I can't even tell you. Um, been looking forward to having him on here. He was a guest on the Meat Eater Podcast, episode 51. So let's bring him on and get to know him. Let's welcome to the show, Ron Rohrbaugh. Hey, Ron. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, much appreciated. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, happy to do so, Glenn. First of all, you know, I want to say thank you for, for bringing me on the podcast and having me on today. It's much appreciated. I know there are a lot of people out there who you uh, might invite and get to talk to, so it's an honor to be here today. Um, yeah, so I, I'm Ron Rarbaugh. I uh, grew up here in Pennsylvania. I'm actually standing in my woods right now in Center County, Pennsylvania, which is just about smack dab in the middle of the state. Um, I've been kind of hunting and fishing my whole life. I went to school at Penn State and got undergraduate and graduate degrees there and did some time out in uh, Oklahoma and Texas out in the Great Plains. I spent uh, a large part of my career in my hunting life in upstate New York, just south of Ithaca. I worked for Cornell University for a number of years and uh, just came back to Pennsylvania about three years ago. It's kind of fun to be back on the old home stomping grounds. Awesome, awesome. So uh, what age did you get into shooting archery? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, like a lot of little kids growing up in a rural area, you know, I had little twig bows, you know, pretty much right out of the gate that I either made for made myself or that my dad made for me. And I remember having one that was a little, just a little all fiberglass bow that probably my mom picked up at Kmart or something. And it had suction cup arrows. And uh, I, I thought the suction cups were kind of wimpy, I guess. So I pulled the suction cups off. And uh, my, my parents owned their own business, did a lot of office work. And so they had an electric pencil sharpener even way back then. And uh, so I used to stick the arrows in the electric pencil sharpener and get them nice and sharp. And then I could uh, stick my arrows and stuff even with my little kid's bow. So that was always fun. Yeah. And then uh, my dad, my whole family, you know, really were, were big time hunters. Um, but not bow hunters. My dad, you know, he only ever, to my knowledge, he only ever killed one animal with a bow, and that was with me just a few years ago. I mean, as as I was coming up, he was a big rifle hunter and traveled all over North America and even to South Africa, but never really bow hunted much. But we had bows around, and so he, you know, as I grew older, you know, the bows that he played with got, uh, you know, passed on to me. And I, I tell this one story in the in the book um, that you've, you probably or you might recall. Um, my dad passed along to me a recurve bow. I think it was around 45 pounds, and it was a, a big upgrade to the little fiberglass bow I had been shooting. And we, we grew up along a, a rather wide creek. It's a, a tributary to the Susquehanna River. And it was in the spring of the year, and there was a Canada goose on the opposite bank of the creek. And I took that recurve and, and launched an arrow across the creek toward the goose, thinking that I could, I would never, ever be able to hit it at that distance. And the arrow arced up high and down and, and uh, pinned the goose to the ground on the other side. <laughs> 
and I had no way to get to it because there was a, a deep creek there. Um, couldn't swim it, didn't have a canoe or anything. And it was a, it was a big life changing moment for me watching that poor goose. Um, you know, it really, it, it really set for me the notion that I was a hunter, but I wanted to learn to protect animals too. And kind of in part, you know, led to me becoming a conservation biologist. Nice. Now, your father got you into archery for the most part? Yeah, yeah. He, well, he got me into hunting. Um, and then, you know, I, I always hunted with, with firearms with him. You know, we gun hunted for deer around our cabin in uh, north central Pennsylvania up in the Sproul State Forest. And around home, we would hunt for squirrels. And, um, you know, this was back in the late 70s, early 80s. And so, you know, pheasant hunting was still really good. So we would hunt the farmland there for pheasants. And then I kind of just got myself into hunting with a compound, and I did that only seriously for a short period of time before I got the the fever in a big way for traditional archery, and uh, it just kind of took off from there. It uh, you know I'm I'm 55 now, and I've been shooting traditional for you know exclusively traditional for 30 years, and uh, I'm still just as excited about it today as I was 30 years. ago. So, so the interest was mo mostly into getting into hunting for the most part, not target. Yeah, yeah, it was hunting first, and then you know, then into archery. And I really didn't have any, you know, I just didn't have any good archery mentors because my family, you know, wasn't into archery. And I got a little bit of instruction, you know, when I bought my first compound bow, you know, from somebody at a shop. But then I quickly got into traditional, and boy, back in the, that was in the 90s, early 90s, and there was just no one who knew anything about traditional archery. I mean, you go to the, the bow shops, and they look like look at you like you had four heads if you started to talk about a recurve. I mean, they just, there was just nothing out there. And there, of course, there was no internet. There was no, there were no podcasts like this one. Um, you know, there, there was only, you had to go try to dig up a book somewhere to learn about it, and, and that's what I did yeah, it's it's kind of funny you say that because uh when i first got into hunting it was like you know 20 years old a friend of mine phil he would show up like you say we all had compound bows and uh he would ha he had the old recurve you know and he was like he'd be like hey he's stalking like an indian <laughs> but but you know yeah. it's, it's funny because you know i've always had an interest because i just think you know like the traditionally it's, it's cool because it's been around for so long and you know it's definitely more challenging i would assume Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's there are some advantages, to, you know, to hunting with a traditional bow over a compound. Um, the chief one, in my mind, is just the simplicity of it. You know, it, I guess the simplicity is both an advantage and a disadvantage. The advantage is that you know there's just not much to go wrong. There's not much to tune. You just basically have a lightweight piece of wood and fiberglass, you know, to carry with you in the woods. The disadvantage of it being simple is that. You don't have any safety net. You don't really have any, um, you know, there's really no technology to fall back on at all. I mean, there's right. no sights. There's no peep. There's no let off. You know, it's just you and the bow and the animal. And, you know, you just have to keep your wits about you long enough to make it all happen. Right. So uh, tell us about life cycle gear. Yeah, happy to. So, you know, like I said, I've been involved in, in traditional archery for, you know, for a very long time. And, and, you know, when you say that, if, you know, if you're, if you're not somebody who's traditional, you know, you, you might not, 
immediately get what that means, but it's, it's not, it's kind of a lifestyle, you know, it's not just something you do. It's a, there's a whole community of people who are really great folks and who support each other. And so I was a member of that community for a long time. And I, I saw people who owned archery businesses and I knew a lot of bowyers, you know, people who made bows. And it was always something that, that interested me. Um, but I had a full-time job. I it was just, you know, wasn't something that, that I could immediately jump into. Right. And then a few years ago, you know, the bug, I guess, bit me even harder. Um, and I decided to just go ahead and, and take the leap. And so I opened a, uh, basically an online-based archery shop called Lifecycle Gear. And we build and sell um, traditional bows, long bows, recurves, and some equipment. I don't do a whole lot of accessories, mostly bows. And our big thing is that, you know, we're focused on building all of our gear um, with American-made and sustainably sourced products. So I use all um, native North American woods in our bows. I don't use any, um, you know, exotic, uh, tropical, ex- exotic tropical uh, woods that are imported from other countries, which is the kind of the mainstay for most bows that are, are made, right. uh, you know, are made from those, those imported woods. Awesome. So um, I know I I love the spalted maple that you guys do. That is just in the colors is just it's really awesome. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could keep those in stock. Yeah, uh, yeah that, they're beautiful. So you know, one of the main things that I, I focus on, um, you know, lately, my the other kind of niche in my in the market that I try to hold is for what are called ILF bows. And ILF stands for International Limb Fitting. And it's a kind of a universal takedown system for bows. And so I make uh, ILF risers. And I think the ones you're talking about are those spalted maple ILF risers. Those things are just gorgeous. Yeah, it's amazing. Because I, I, years ago, I, uh, I, cut up, I was making these uh, little lamps out of logs. And uh, there was a big maple went down in the back of my parents' house. And I cut it up, and I, I noticed all, like, the markings in it. And then I used to, before I worked for the state, I used to do wallpaper for years. And this guy had an old 1942 sawmill, and he took me out to it, and he was showing me the wood. And I go, wow, that's beautiful. And he goes, it's spalted maple. And I said, I think I might have had that in the backyard. Because what he would do is when you cross-cut it, that's when you get, like, that zebra striping and like I was just like after that I fell in love with it you know it's just so uh, cool yeah so. yeah it's hard to work with because I mean what the the spalted maple is is the you know it's wood that's been it's you know a tree that's fallen over or a limb that's broken out or something and it's laid on the ground for a long time and it gets invaded by fungus and that fungus caused the you called it zebra and it's a good way to describe it, it gets those dark brown and black stripes running through it from the fungus. But at the same time, the fungus makes the wood weak, right. and so it's it's hard to use for you know things like making bows. So so we stabilize all of it okay. before we make it into a bow. Interesting, nice. So how can people uh, find these products? Yeah, you can uh, check out check out our website. It's uh, yourlifecyclegear.com. Um, click on the store, and uh, you can see all sorts of products on there. There's um, yeah, bow. We work with a number of different companies and, and bow makers around the country, and I get them to build bows to my specifications with my woods, and then I sell them on, on my website. And then you'll also find our own line of bows on there. 
So check it out, and if anybody, you know, if you see something you like but not in your your size, so to speak, give me a shout. Um, we can usually try to fix folks up. Awesome, awesome. So you're a writer. Um, so you, you do any writing for any magazines or newspapers? Yeah, I mean, you've, I, you've probably seen my stuff in, in some of the magazines. Um, I used to write a ton for traditional bow hunter magazine and bow hunter and deer and deer hunting and bow and arrow hunting. Um, you know, back in the in the '90s, kind of in the heyday, even the, you know, up through the early 2000s, even you know, the heyday of the magazines. You know, there was a lot of writing to be done and a lot of magazines out there, and and those sorts of of periodical publications are just they're really in trouble these days. I mean, the internet has has put a hurting on magazines and newspapers. Um, you know, and and I just kind of so I don't write for them as much as I used to. I think I got. I got burned out on the on the formula, you know. When you write for a magazine, it's it's very formulaic, you know. You know, there's a certain certain way to do it, and and it's a kind of writing that kind of has a lot of guardrails that that I'm not crazy about, and so that slowed me down a little bit. I just got a little tired of that. And then the other thing that that I don't know, you know, this gets into a lot of, as you know, you know, hunting has a lot of controversial things, and. Um, you know, I didn't like the direction that a lot of the hunting magazines were going, right. um, you know, with their advertising and some of the stuff they were promoting. And I just kind of didn't want to be a part of it, you know. And so I, I stopped writing for some of them. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I stopped watching, like, hunting shows years ago because I felt it was just out of my league, you know. Here I go to my little piece of land, you know, and then you watch these shows with the big bucks. And it, it's funny, like, it. It just turned me off to the uh, the TV end of it, and then I recently just started watching. I mean, it's been years now, but uh, when I had Netflix, Stephen Rinella's Meat Eater, I was like, you know, I just stumbled upon it. I'm like, wow, this guy's like eating the meat on the side of a mountain, and, you know, yeah, exactly. And, and the public land part of it. So like that intrigued me. It, it sucked me back into it, and I've read his books. They're really awesome books, you know. And that's the thing with your book, you know, it's people telling their tales about, you know, about the outdoors and their passion for it. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right on about the whole antler craze and all, all that. That was the you know, kind of the big thing that turned me off is that, you know, if you, if you weren't shooting a 140 inch buck, you know, it, it just, you were somehow belittled and, and not as good as the next guy. And I just saw that as, as, not a very welcoming message for new people coming into hunting or for kids or for anybody really, you know, it just, it just didn't seem right to me. And you're right. I mean, it has come around. I mean, you know that I'm a, a huge supporter of backcountry hunters and anglers. And I think that's a group that really promotes, you know, good ethical hunting and, uh, and Renella as well. Meat Eaters are a great show. Yeah. I just recently really started to get into backcountry hunters and anglers. It's amazing how long I've been doing, you know, hunting and stuff like that and just really haven't gotten into the conservation part of it. So um, I really enjoy that. I've gone on a couple of their uh, Zoom meetings and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a it's a great group and it's growing so fast. I mean, it's just a, amazing. They're very different than, you know, a lot of the, the kind of traditional what I call hook and bullet style hunting groups you know they're they're much more um i think open-minded uh much more progressive in thinking about what hunting means and how hunting has an intersection with conservation they've got great programs to pull in new hunters you know with um 
you know, efforts on college campuses. They've got a program called Hunting for Sustainability, uh, which is all about bringing new hunters into the fold. So it's, it's a really good group. That's awesome. So I wanted to talk to you about your book, but do you have anything new coming up? Yeah, I, I do, actually. I'm, I'm almost finished um, with a new book, which is actually the first in a book series that I'm really, really excited about. I've been working on it for a little while now. Um, I'll tell you a little, a little backstory and then tell you, tell you I'll, t- I'll tell you the backstory and tell you how I got into writing a book of this kind. So I'm, I'm 55, um, but I have two young children, a son who's seven and my daughter is four. And so, you know, all of a sudden, you know, here I am, a guy in my fifties and I have young kids. And it's really sparked my thinking about, you know, how do we continue our hunting heritage and how do I, you know, you know, first and foremost, you know, you have my own kids really appreciate, you know, the outdoors and natural history and, and, you know, being interested in conservation. And I don't push anything on them, but I certainly, you know, want to expose them to all of those sorts of things. And and hopefully, you know, they they pick it up and, and get as excited about it as I do. And, and that led to thinking about, what about other kids? Like, you know, there, there just are no books out there that are really well-rounded books that, you know, are focused on outdoor adventures and science and conservation and natural history, but also talk about hunting. And so I've started a, a new book series. It's called Living Wild with the Orions. And it's about a family who lives in, in uh, on the edge of what's called the Pennsylvania Wilds here in Pennsylvania. And it's about their adventures and what they do um, as a family, hunting, fishing, foraging for wild edibles and the various you know kinds of things that they get into. And the, the first book in the series is just about finished, and it's called Echo. And it's about the, the young boy in the family. He's 11 years old. And he's kind of going through a a rite of passage in this book, you know, his uh, transition to manhood, so to speak. He's 11, coming up on 12 in his first hunting season. And in his family, there is a tradition. uh, It's called the Sure Enough Mountain Man tradition. And it's this tradition of, of having, you know, a young boy before he turns 12 and can officially hunt. He goes on a little wilderness sojourn on his own uh it's very pretty similar to a native american vision quest and so in this book young echo is on his his wilderness journey um and along the way he meets a native american woman kind of uh she's a little bit crazy um and she she kind of helps him learn some some wilderness survival skills and uh there's a little bit of mystery involved too with the whole thing so i'm really excited to get it out there Cool. Is there any passages you would like to share with us tonight? Yeah, I'd be willing to, to read a passage if you're if you want to. If uh, listeners are willing to listen, sure. And uh, you know, let me, uh, if I can get this figured out here for a second. It's nice to have a little bit of a preview. <laughs> Yeah, so so in the passage that I'm going to read, I'll set this up for you a little bit. You know, Echo is, um, he's on his sure enough mountain man trip, 
And he's made a number of mistakes. Um, one of those mistakes is that he's kind of trekked off the trail that he and his dad have agreed upon um, to look for a hidden book that is connected to this Native American woman who he's become friends with. And uh, nobody knows he's done this, and he's kind of gotten himself a little little off course. And uh, in this particular chapter, he's gotten himself into trouble because he's quite hungry. He's out here living off the land. So with that, I'll uh, read this passage to you. Despite the pain, Echo craned his neck to peer again at the object partially hidden in the huckleberry brush. He could see the dappled black, brown, and rust of the wing, the outstretched pinkish gray foot, and even the crest of the dead ruffed grouse. A few feet away lay the broken shaft of his arrow, with a shiny smear of blood along its length. He sighed in disgust with his foolishness and childish lack of restraint. As if to torture himself, he couldn't stop thinking about all the mistakes that led up to the very bad situation in which he now found himself. About an hour after breaking camp that morning, Echo neared an unusual place where two small streams, one from the east and another from the west, flowed into Young Woman's Creek. As he wondered if this was the spot he'd been looking for all along, a burst of thunder erupted near his feet. The sound startled him, but he recovered in time to see the rough grouse land in a big white pine 20 yards ahead. This was a game bird, covered by game laws and off-limits to Echo and his bow. But the gnawing hunger obsessed him, and his mouth watered at the thought of roast grouse, hot from the fire and dripping with juice. At first he thought, I'll just get close enough and see if I can draw my bow without being detected. Getting within bow range proved easy, and he understood now why some people call the ruffed grouse a fool hen. He shuffled his feet into shooting position, raised his bow arm, and drew the string until the middle finger of his right hand settled into the corner of his mouth. Adjusting his bow arm upward, his arrow's shaft and the grouse came into the same sight picture. And then it happened. Without a conscious decision, the arrow was off like it had a mind of its own. No, I didn't mean that, roared Echo, but it was too late to take it back. The arrow hit its mark, and in a puff of feathers, the bird was struck dead, tumbling only a couple of feet before being caught up in a tangle of branches 30 feet above the ground. Echo was struck hard with a jumble of confusing feelings. Pride, grief, and guilt all washed over him at the same time. He'd heard his dad talk about Hunter's Paradox, which is the strange brew of emotions hunters get immediately after killing an animal. But this was different. Not only did Echo kill a living creature, but he'd done it illegally. And worse, it was stuck in the tree where it would go to waste. Thoughts raced through Echo's mind like machine gun fire. Should I walk away and never tell anyone? I'm in the wilderness. No one would know. Maybe I could throw sticks or rocks to knock the grouse from the tree. No, probably won't work. Too high and too many lower branches to get a stick through. Then a terrifying thought came to Echo's mind. I could climb the tree and scoot onto the outer branches where the grouse is tangled and knock the bird loose. This scared Echo, 
as he knew the branches of white pine were flimsy, especially near their ends. Butterflies filled his stomach, as he knew deep down what he had to do. Hunger, guilt, and his profound respect for wildlife would not let him walk away. He moved to the tree, leaned his bow against it, and threw his backpack to the side. The few lower limbs that, that he could reach were broken off, and not more than stubs that he could get a toe hold on. As he climbed, longer, thicker branches jutted from the trunk, and he went up easily until he was about 30 feet up and on the same level with the grouse. He made the mistake of looking down and immediately became queasy. A cold sweat formed under his hat, and for what seemed like forever he was frozen, unable to force his hands or feet in any direction. He remembered a trip to an amusement park with his family. He was on one of those merry-go-rounds where you have to catch the brass ring while balancing on a moving wooden horse going in circles. He was afraid to reach for the ring until his dad said, Forget about the horse. Just focus on the ring until it's time to snag it. That's what he had to do now. Focus on the grouse until it was time to snag it. With renewed concentration, he crawled away from the tree's trunk and onto the middle portion of the limbs, which began slowly sagging under his weight. He found that if he inched slowly, he could counter the sag and ride it out like staying up on a floating log. With just three feet to go, he knew he'd never make it. The limbs were bending too much and would soon snap or dump him to the ground like a load of wet snow. He reached left to snap a dead branch that he might use to dislodge the grouse, and that's when it happened. His shifting center of gravity was too much. At first he tumbled over like a tower of Jenga blocks and then dropped like an apple from Newton's tree. Not straight down, but like a rag doll bouncing from limb to limb, with bigger branches catching him hard on the head and neck. He was unconscious before hitting the ground with a sickening thud. Wow. That's, that was that's great. That was great, Ron. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, so that's... Uh, well, that's about uh, six or seven chapters into the book where we're learning about why Echo is in such a, a predicament at the moment. So now he's he's off the path that he was supposed to be on where no one can find him. Uh, and clearly by the passage I just read, now he's also injured. And so the story really starts to get good after that. Yeah, it was great. And it's like, as you're reading it, you know, I, I can picture everything very vividly. And I think we could all have been through something like that in our <laughs> lives. <laughs> I yeah, read, so I, so the, the book is written for, you know, what the, the liter, you know, literature community would call middle grades, which are kids, you know, roughly from eight to about 14 years of age. And my idea is to use it kind of as a, um, you know, a hunting recruitment tool, you know, to get kids and families, you know, first and foremost in the outdoors and excited about nature. And then also, you know, about hunting, especially, especially thinking about, you know, ethical hunting and, and conservation. And that's the thing, like, you know, I get out of that is, the, you know, how, how you act when nobody's watching. <laughs> <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> it's like the struggle within. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. The struggle within. That's, that's exactly right. And, and of course, you know, you don't have any context for the rest of the book, but, you know, that's the way Echo was raised. You know, his family is, is very outdoorsy, um, but very much thinking about the ethics of, of hunting and, and conservation, not in a, not in a dull sort of way. You know, my, my hope is that the book is really exciting and captures, you know, kids' attention. And yeah. gets them excited to be outdoors. I want to, I want them to put their, uh, you know, put their their screens down, uh, pick up a book, and then get outside. Absolutely, you know, there's a lot. You know, I've seen the pictures with you know how you have your kids outside doing stuff. I saw the one with the log. That was great. You know, chopping wood. Um, there's not enough of that, unfortunately. You know, kids like you said, they hardly leave the house anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's true. I mean, we. We give our kids a lot of latitude to do things, and we spend a, a, a ton of time outdoors. Um, you know, my son is seven, and he has more pocket knives than I do. <laughs> you know, he uses an axe and splits wood on his own, and uh, you know, shoots a bow like a champ. So that's awesome. We we were at a campground last year, um, camping with our little pop up camper, and our daughter, who's uh, she's she's four then, I guess. And um, she was working on splitting a small piece of wood with a little hatchet that she has. And some, some little boy came frantically running up to my wife and said, I forget exactly how he said it, but he's like, ma'am, ma'am, your little girl has a hatchet and you have to take it away from her before she gets hurt. <laughs> I was like, no, that's her hatchet, man. Yeah. She'll hurt you with that thing. <laughs> oh, man. That's great. Yeah. I can't wait to get my hands on that new book. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm just so excited about it. I'm at the I'm just about finished writing. Uh, I'm working with an illustrator at the moment. I've got the cover design done. So probably only uh, maybe a couple more months, and it should be out. Awesome! Oh, that's great. I was I thought it might have been a little bit longer than that, but that's great. So, well, I'm being optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll hope for it. So uh, yeah, so I read your other book, um, Traditional Bow Hunter's Path: Lessons and Adventures at Full Draw. So uh, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. Um, it came out, I guess, about, about four years ago now. And, you know, at that point, it was kind of a culmination of my experiences and, and my thinking related especially to traditional bow hunting. You know, it was right around the time that my son was born. And so, you know, kind of a lot had a, you know, kind of a flurry of thoughts in my head. I wanted to get my stories and my thinking on paper in a way for him. And, you know, in so doing, I was like, well, if I'm putting all this on paper for him and I'm writing all of this up, you know, it, it might as well become a book. And I also wanted to get, you know, my, as you know, you know, I kind of live in two worlds. You know, in one world, I'm a professional conservation biologist and I work mostly with non-game birds and I think about environmental conservation all the time. And then in kind of my own personal world, you know, I'm a, I'm a hunter and a traditional bow hunter and I wanted to try to bring those two things together a little bit too. And, and uh, this is the, we talked earlier about magazines and how it's very formulaic and you, you kind of, you have a lot of guardrails to, to, to deal with in a book of your own, you don't have those guardrails. And so that allowed me to bring some pieces together that, that I just couldn't do in magazine articles. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause uh, in your book, you talk about a man. I thought this was a great uh, piece about a man, you know, you came across while hunting and you describe him as around 80, but maybe weathered 60 and a man who had been in the archery game a long time. Uh, you compare his felt hat, flannel shirt, 
a back quiver with carbon arrows and single pin on his bow to your modern camo and quiver on your bow. Um, so your book touches on like not rejecting innovations. So you want to talk a little bit on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to. The, you know, the, it's funny, earlier I mentioned how, how cool the traditional archery community is and what a close-knit group it is, and that's all true. Um, but they're also, you know, really prickly about, you know, what they, you know, what one person or what one group calls traditional and what another group thinks is not traditional and so on. And it just, you know, that sort of pickiness drives me a little bit crazy. And so... You know, the, the point I was trying to make with that little passage you were just describing there with this old guy is that, you know, here, here's a guy who's clearly been hunting, you know, way longer than I have. Um, you know, he's all dressed in traditional garb, yet he has a sight pin on his traditional bow, which, you know, most people would disqualify him right off the bat. You can't put a sight right. on a recurve bow. I mean, I, I mean, I don't think that, but a lot of people would say that. Um, and then here he is with his, you know, with his quiver full of carbon arrows instead of, you know, wooden, you know, Port Orford cedar shafts, like a lot of folks would think would be the, the requirement to be traditional. And so, I, you know, to me, one of the point I was trying to make is, you know, here's this guy who's clearly been around, been doing this a lot longer than most of us, probably knows a whole hell of a lot more than most of us. And this is the, you know, the equipment choices these are the equipment choices that he's making. Does that disqualify him? Is he not a traditional bow hunter? And so I just think it's, it's silly for us to reject innovations, you know, up to a certain limit. It's, it's about a state of mind. Right. In, in my view, you know, traditional bow hunting is about doing things the hard way. Um, you know, it's about using a single string bow and adhering to some rules, but it doesn't mean we reject carbon arrows or that you know you're all of a sudden uh you know blasphemous if you put a uh sight on a bow i mean i, I think all of that's just crazy right yeah because uh you know i know there's been a lot of talk with the uh the crossbows going full archery season and i was yeah. on the, i'm on the fence with that because i i personally have seen things while i was in the field and you know, like that was my little bit of a safe haven was not being with guys just wandering around the woods, yeah. you know, and I had two guys like walk right by me. I'm just like, come on, man. So as a traditional bow hunter, you know, what are your thoughts on crossbows being used all archery season? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, this gets into my my philosophies on politics and that sort of thing, too. I mean, I don't think anything is easy. In my mind making these sorts of decisions and judgments is always complicated. You can't just paint a black and white picture. Right. And I'll give you an example of why I don't dismiss crossbows straight out of hand. So I get, especially through backcountry hunters and anglers, I get a lot of younger hunters coming to me. When I say younger, I think I'm thinking of guys in their, you know, maybe late teens up through even their early 30s. And they're, you know, they're certainly adults, but they're young in their hunting experience. They maybe have never killed a deer before. And they have this romantic idea of picking up a longbow or a recurve and going out and shooting their first deer. And I think that's great. And if you have the skill to do that and you have the patience to get through however many seasons it's going to take you to get good enough to do that, then great. 
go for it. But what I often tell them is, go killing an animal is is not like cracking an egg into a bowl. You know, it's something that's very emotional. It's a way to get your food that's going to shake you to the core. And so you need to learn how to do it in a slightly more, a slightly easier and more efficient way before you go picking up a wooden longbow. And sometimes I recommend a crossbow or a compound, depending on the situation. And some guys frown at me for that, but I would much rather have somebody go kill a deer or two with a crossbow, get hooked on hunting, and then come back to me and buy a recurve and, and you know, become a, an avid traditional bow hunter. Yeah. That, you know, so, I, I couldn't agree with you more there. Yeah, so I mean, I think there's places. I do, um, you know, I do have a bit of a bitter spot for the notion that crossbows are allowed in all archery seasons. Because to me, a crossbow really isn't an archery implement. I mean, it's, it, you know, you hold it like a rifle. You pull the trigger like a rifle. There's no, you're not pulling any, so you're not holding any string weight at all. Um, it's, you know, it's hard. I don't think anyone could convince me that in the standard definition of archery that, you know, a crossbow is archery. But right. I do think that there are times when, you know, it's not a terrible thing. Right, right. Especially like you were saying about the efficiency. I mean, I, I've always wanted like a traditional bow. And at one point, you know, when I have the extra funds, I would like to do it. But like you said, I, w I probably wouldn't just jump into a tree stand with it. Absolutely. It, it, for me, it would be more just to shoot it at targets and just enjoy like the old school ways that things were done, you know, back like with Indians and yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, it takes time, too. I mean, a lot of these people I work with have young families, and they have full-time jobs. And, you know, it, it doesn't – I've been doing this a long time. So, you know, I, I don't have to go out and practice every night to feel confident going in the woods when October rolls around. But if you're new to traditional bow hunting, you better have three or four nights a week, you know, that you can go out and really practice to get proficient before you think about climbing up in a tree with a longbow. Right. I mean, some guys don't. I mean, some guys are naturally really good. I shouldn't paint a, you know, a stereotypical picture. But, um, you know, for the most part, you really need to practice. Right. Do you, have, do you have, like, recommend a certain kind of a bow to a beginner, like size or weight? Yeah. I mean, generally, if you're just starting out, you know, the easiest bow to shoot is a recurve with, you know, what we would call a pistol-style grip. Um, it's a contoured grip that can, you know, gives you good re hand repeatability. It's easy to hold. It's easy to pull a hunting weight bow with a pistol grip. Unlike a, you know, if you want to, if you think about it, you can compare it like a pistol grip style recurve. It's kind of like a nice thumb hole rest on a, you know, a beautiful custom rifle. Whereas a standard style longbow that doesn't have a contoured grip is, is kind of like grabbing hold of a baseball bat or a broomstick or something. There's right. just not, not a lot there. And the grip makes, makes all the difference. Um, so, you know, I typically recommend a recurve, um, or a longbow with a contoured grip and stay low in weight, you know, even for, you know, an adult male, uh, you know, a young guy who's, who's nice and strong, even no more than, than, 40 45 pounds until you really get the hang of it okay that's good to know when i go to purchase my first one <laughs> yeah and, and you know and I, I work with people a lot i also think that it's really
really, really helpful so you don't um, spend money unnecessarily is to try to find somebody who can who can give you some advice or, or be a mentor. And, and uh, you know, I do that often for people. And for anybody listening to this podcast, feel free to connect with me either on social media, you know, or through my Lifecycle Gear website, and I'm happy to help, help folks out. Awesome. I'll be reaching out to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that doesn't mean you have to buy a bow from me either. I mean, I, you know, the kinds of bows I sell are, are fancy and custom and expensive. And, you know, most guys just getting started don't want to drop a thousand dollars on a bow. So, right. um, but I do have, I have, um, I'm a dealer for various other companies and I can get, you know, other bows that are a little less expensive than the ones on my website. So happy to help folks out. Awesome. Awesome. So it's funny because, uh, you know, a lot of times I've seen these Native American, uh, you know, depictions of them stalking around, you know, like hunting with their bows. Do you prefer the ground or do you hunt from a stand? I do both. Um, I have to confess, I mean, my favorite way to hunt is with a climbing tree stand. I've got a, a lone wolf climber that I've been using for years. Um, I like to hunt from trees, and I, I don't like to be um, in one place all the time, like with a, a ladder stand or a uh, you know a, a portable stand, a hang-on stand. I like, especially during the rut, I'm constantly moving with you know changing deer behavior because of the rut, changing. Um, food types and, and where that food is located when the leaves drop um bucks especially shift their bedding areas and so you know if you if you've set up your portable tree stand you know knowing or thinking that you know the beds are over here and the food is over here and you're going to catch them in the middle and then the leaves drop in late october and now all of a sudden the pattern shifts and you wonder where all the deer went and so i you know i'm constantly moving with a climbing stand right all right cool yeah, because it's funny. Uh, <laughs> I have guys with my, I'm part of a gun club. I don't hunt it very often, but uh, I'm not big in the heights and uh, usually about six, seven feet max for me. But I've been very effective over the years because you learn how to, you know, like where to be. You know, you don't want to be on top of them, but at the same time, you know, you, you know how to use the wind in various locations. So it's, uh, you know, that's how I've always hunted. I had guys tell me, you know, hey, you can jump out of your stand, you know. But. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I don't blame you one bit. I, you know, I, it's one of the differences, I think, between compound hunting and traditional bow hunting is that, you know, you, I mean, clearly you don't do this, but, you know, compound hunter, hunters can use height to hide themselves. They can hide their scent. They can hide, you know, visually from a deer, just go higher, and you can often get away with a ton. And you don't have to worry too much about arrow penetration because you've got so much energy with a compound bow. You can right. shoot at that downward angle, and it's it's most of the time not a big deal. But with a traditional bow, that doesn't work. And so I'm with you. I'm often not going as high because I, I, I look into the tree and say, okay, there's where the cover is. And if the cover's only at 10 feet, then that's where I stop. You know, it just you just need to – to think about where that cover is that's going to break your, your background. Yeah, you know, it's funny, too. I have a good friend who actually got me into hunting, and, uh, you know, he used to go really high, and a lot of times he'd, he'd like, graze deer or have funky ankles because, to me, like, you're also cutting off the amount of area you have to shoot at. Yeah, it's true. You know, and, I mean, he's he wounded quite a few deer, you know, because just the yep. angle, you know, that they were right underneath him and he's shooting down on their back straps. 
Yep, absolutely. And you asked about ground hunting. You know, I think that's a lost art too. I see so many guys who just overlook great hunting spots because there are no trees or at least no good trees to put a stand in. And I've had great luck with just a, a ghillie suit and a stool, basically. Yeah. Yeah, how's that shooting with the ghillie suit? Um, if you want to know the truth, I think it's a pain in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship with ghillie suits. I mean, they, they're great for breaking up your silhouette, but uh, shooting out of them is... In fact, last year, I, for years, I've had the same ghillie suit, and every year I take a pair of scissors, and I trim a few more of those strands off my chest and my left arm, so my bowstring doesn't hit it. Right. Uh, last year, I, I got so frustrated, I took my wife's scissors and I cut the entire arm off. <laughs> like, <laughs> nice. All right, I'm done with this thing. So now my ghillie suit just has one arm. And it doesn't seem to have made a difference. <laughs> nice. So, uh, so you're involved with the Audubon Pennsylvania International Wood Thrust Conservation Alliance and a member of the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. Um, conservation committee what roles do you play in each yeah that's a good question it's sometimes i wonder how i i stay sane with all i get myself into um so in, in terms of audubon i mean that's my regular full-time job i, I spent you know, years at cornell university i was there for over 20 years and you know i loved it there um uh, but our families were in Pennsylvania, and you know we're you know we had young kids. Our you know my wife's parents and my parents were getting older, and we wanted to move back to Pennsylvania just to kind of be closer to our families and, and make sure our kids had a chance to know their grandparents. And we've kind of been thinking about just making the leap without me having a clean you know a clean move to another job. Just kind of do it. And then a job came up at Audubon, Pennsylvania, and I thought, you know what? This is our chance. If we're ever going to do it, we've got to do it now. And uh, so I left Cornell and, and took a position with Audubon and, and have been here, uh, not, been here not quite three years, a little, about two and a half years at this point. Yes. Yeah, so how do you manage your time with all that? <laughs> well, it's not easy. I, I'm not one for staying up late at night. I've never have been. Even when I was younger, I was always asleep by nine o'clock. It seems that I'm still that way. I'm often in bed by, you know, eight thirty, nine o'clock. But then I, I'm up and and out of the out of bed very early in the morning to get my day started. And my, my creative mind is best in the morning, so I'll get up in the morning and, you know, and do my writing, like for my book and those sorts of things, you know, early in the morning. And then I transition into my regular day job and go from there and just try to, to manage it. Are you, are you still involved in backcountry hunters and anglers? Uh, not as much as I used to be. I was the uh, chair of the New York chapter when I lived in New York and, and worked at Cornell. But when I moved to Pennsylvania, I, you know, I had to um, to give that up, you know, obviously because I wasn't living in New York, and I just haven't become haven't become quite as involved here in Pennsylvania, mainly for the reason we're we're talking about. I just don't I don't have the time to commit to it. I still fully support the organization and help when I can, but. I'm not on the board or anything at this point. Okay. All right. So uh, tell everybody how they can get your book and uh, anything else you want to let them know. Yeah. Um, you can get 
get the, the book three different ways, actually. You can go to my Lifecycle Gear website, which is www.yourlifecyclegear.com, and click on the store, and you'll find the traditional bow hunter's path there. You can buy it at Amazon. Um, just search on my name or the book's title in Amazon, and you can get it there. And it's also available as an Audible book on Audible. Or an audio book on Audible, I guess is the way you say that. All right. And same thing, just search on my name, and it'll, it'll come up in Audible. All right. So before my guests sign off, I like them to tell a campfire story. It's a story they love to tell about an experience while hunting, fishing, or being in outdoors. Well, I've got a lot of those, um, and since we were, uh, you know, before you hit the record button, we were talking about hazards in the woods, rattlesnakes, and uh, you mentioned that somebody, you saw a video of a, somebody was calling turkeys, and a bear came in and popped up over a log, <laughs> and uh, so I have, a, I have a, a short bear story that I'll tell. Uh, I don't know how exciting it is, but it was, uh, well, let's just say it was thrilling for me uh, in a not-so-good way, and, and uh, a first for me. So this was uh, not just this past fall, but the fall of the fall of 2019. I was hunting public land here in Pennsylvania. I was hunting Moshannon State Forest, which is a giant state forest, functionally right in in our backyard. Um, it was probably about the third week in October, and I had climbed up uh, a little uh, black cherry tree in my lone wolf climber that was growing in front of a big hemlock tree and I had great cover. I had a couple of different, a couple of little different hollows that were coming together and a little place, you know, a little, little spot where deer were crossing this ridge. There were a couple of scrapes there. I mean, it's just one of those things. Was, Man, this is slam dunk. I've got such good cover. I've got good sign. You know, this is all going to work. I was in the stand probably an hour, maybe an hour and a half, and I caught some movement to my right and a little bit in front of me, and all of a sudden, there's this bear coming, kind of angling up the direction I wasn't expecting animals to come from, I was expecting them to come from above, and this big old jet black bear, I think it was a boar, can't be positive, but it looked like a boar to me, um, came out and kind of angled over in front of me, and I only had a few days to go until the, the bear archery season came in, but it was a few days, and so I wasn't able to shoot. But this bear works around in front of me. You know, I even got some pretty cool video of it, and then works up the ridge and eventually disappears. I don't see anything, no, no deer after that, no big deal. So it gets, you know, I always stay in the tree until, you know, the very last legal limit. And so it's starting to get dark and I'm packing up my stuff and fooling with my safety harness. And I hear this loud, and I've been around a lot of bears and I know what a aggressive wolf sounds like. And I hear wolf. And I look to my left and it's dark enough now. And it's just this jet black bear. I could just kind of make out this big bear. He's on my left side now. It made a big circle around me. I'm thinking, what is that bear doing and why is it wolfing at me? And I'm, you know, continue to get my stuff together. And the, the more time goes on, the louder it's, it's wolfing, the more aggressive it's getting. And I'm thinking, how am I going to get out of here? Like, I'm, you know, I'm in this tree. It clearly knows I'm here. And it's clearly, you know, upset about something. And at this time, I start thinking, okay, maybe I wasn't right about it being a boar. Maybe it's a sow. She has cubs and I didn't see them. 
So and now I'm like, oh, crap, what am I going to do? So I'm stuck. I come down till I'm about 10 feet off the ground, and this bear continues to woof. And now I can hear it coming up. I don't know if you've ever seen an, you know, an aggressive black bear. Grizzlies do this too. They'll come up on, on their front feet and slam their feet down. And this black bear is woofing him. Boom, boom, with its woofing and, and booming at its feet at the same time. I'm thinking, oh man, as soon as, I, as, soon as my heat, feet hit the ground, this thing's going to tear me to ribbons. And so it just got, it got darker and darker. The bear just kept circling me and woofing. And finally, I decided, look, I have no cell signal either. Like, I can't call anybody, can't do anything. Like, all right, I just have to get down and get out of here. And so I bailed out of my tree stand, immediately knocked an arrow, had my headlamp on, and I start walking for the truck. And literally the whole way to the truck, this bear stays on my right, just far enough out that I can get a little bit of eye shine now and then in my headlamp. Mostly it's so dark, I can't actually see the bear. And it shadows me the whole way to the truck, wolfing and popping its teeth and and stomping its feet. And I tell you, it's I've never really been scared in the woods too many times. But that one was one that uh, put the hair up on the back of my neck. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> and I don't – I still to this day don't – I mean, I've been around a lot of bears. They typically – you know, turn tail and get out of there. I don't know if the, I never saw any cubs. Um, I don't know if there were cubs around or or what the deal was. But uh, we have a lot of bears here in PA, right. and the uh, number of conflicts continues to go up. So yeah, well, that's where the that's the thing. Um, that was a great story because <laughs> it, it's funny that now I'll be thinking about it even more. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, you're, you know, you're in that situation where you know you're safe. Well, you don't know you're completely safe. The bear could come up the tree. But, you know, you feel mostly safe on the tree, but you have to make this decision. Like, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to, you know, cling to this tree all night long? What am I, you know, yeah. am I going to jump or what am I going to do? And you know, and eventually you just have to decide and do it. Yeah, because it's funny. I grew up, you know – Outside of the city, you know, it's like 80 miles north, very rural. Um, but I moved to the Catskill Mountains. And basically, be t when I got the job with the state, I had to go up towards Schenectady, Albany area. And it just it really wasn't working out with me hunting at my home anymore. So I started hunting public land here in the Catskills up in the high peaks. And last year... The first opening day of bow, and I told you I don't go high in the, in the stand. I I see a big boar come out, and 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 believe it or not, I made the decision. I was like, so I want to try bear meat. I was like, if he comes, I'm gonna I'm gonna take him. But he you know skirted off and he went up the mountain a different way. And you know now I'm back to like sitting there listening for deer. And all of a sudden I hear this running because it's very steep where I'm hunting, and. uh I look over my shoulder, and here comes two cubs, and they stop like 10 yards from me. Now, on the one side, because <laughs> it's so steep, I'm probably four feet, you know, but off the backside of the tree, I'm like 15, you know, either way. And here comes the mother, and I'm just like, please keep uh. going, because I'm just like, this is not good. Like, she'll swat me off the tree stand. You know? like, <laughs> but, you know, they ended up taking off up the mountain, and uh, I got good footage of it, you know, but... Uh, oh, it's great. It, but like you said, it was kind of like, this could get really sketchy in a hurry, yep. because they it's stopped... Very interesting. <laughs> yep. So... 
Yeah. But, but Ron, I want to thank you very much for coming on. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on. Oh, absolutely, Glenn. Happy to do it um, anytime. And if I can help you out with some traditional archery stuff or whatever it is, uh, you know where to find me. All right. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. All right. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Well, that was great having Ron on tonight. Amazing person. Just want to thank him for coming on the show tonight. I read his book, and it was awesome, and I'm glad he came on the podcast. It was much appreciated, especially for him sharing a little passage out of his new book and the series of books he has coming out. So that was really cool. So before I wrap it up, as you know, I like to talk a little bit about DEC Wildlife News. On uh, April 24th, while on a patrol, ECO Grady received a tip about a subject fishing at the end of a jetty and they were keeping baby stripers so the person said something to this person and I guess what most people would call Karens now on the internet <laughs> when people are just trying to help people out do the right thing but is what it is uh, anyhow uh, they got caught with a bunch of fish that were outside of the legal slot limit and ticketed the angler for possession of over limit and undersized fish. Other news I wanted to go over, which was an inter interesting story, was um, about Colorado. I guess they're going to be emptying out the Mac Mesa Reservoir. So apparently, somebody put a northern pike in the reservoir, but Problem being that Colorado is part of a pact, a three-state pact that was initiated in 1988 to recover the humpback chub, razorback sucker, bony tail, and Colorado pike minnow. Uh, they're on the verge of extinction. So um, problem is that, as we all know, northern pike are pretty, pretty brutal and uh, ferocious predators. So. What they're going to do is they're going to basically empty out the whole reservoir and uh, take what fish they have in there and move them for the time being. Unfortunately, it's going to be a pretty big disruption to anglers. But, you know, on the other hand, you don't want a fish to be extinct over something so stupid like this. But. So, you know, hey, <laughs> think about this kind of stuff before you do things like that. I mean, obviously, for hundreds of years, we've been dealing with invasive species, not just with, you know, fish or animals, for that matter, but even with, you know, purple loose strife and all that kind of stuff that's brought over from other countries. Even, uh, isn't, I think, I believe New Zealand's like a big country where all these animals are brought in, and so... But that's all I got for you guys tonight. And once again, I just want to say thanks for listening. It's much appreciated. Um, keep spreading the word. Let's get a bunch of listeners. Let's get people on here. Got any show ideas? Let me know. Hit me up. Facebook, Instagram, Appalachian Timber Ghost Outdoor Adventures. All right. Peace out, guys. This episode of Appalachian Timber Ghost Outdoor Adventures podcast is brought to you by Wild Kingdom Soap. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram.
Okay.